would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. And I want to read in your hearing the sixth and the seventh verse. Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, the apostle says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm not sure I know of a portion of Scripture that excels the book of Philippians in having the richest instruction on practical Christian living compressed within the confines of just four chapters. From its opening challenge to only let your life your life be worthy of the gospel in chapter 1 and verse 27 to the challenge to have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus in chapter 2 to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling also in chapter 2 this is a letter that teems with personal exhortations to live out the Christian life in faith and in faithfulness But it not only presents us these wonderful exhortations, it also provides us with amazing examples, wondrous and marvelous examples, both of Jesus himself, who humbled himself from that place and position of pre-incarnate glory to become obedient unto death, the death of the cross in chapter 2, to Paul's own autobiographical account of how The confidence he could have had in the flesh because of his upbringing and his spiritual privileges as a Jew born of the tribe of Benjamin, born as a Hebrew of the Hebrews and all of the rest counting as loss all things for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord to be found in him having not a righteousness of his own but what comes from faith in Christ. Paul's own narrative of his own imprisonment in a Roman prison, seeing preachers who were looking to add affliction to him, and yet rejoicing that in the midst of their own ill motives, Christ is preached, and he rejoices. And his confidence that even in a Roman prison, uncertain of the outcome of what his trial will be, he yet knows that for him to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You don't get better examples of the perspective of living the Christian life that what Jesus himself provides in his own self-giving, his own self-giving love and what Paul provides in his ministerial commitment to serving Christ faithfully in life and in death. It doesn't get any better than this letter in terms of exhortations, in terms of examples. And then we come to the conclusion of the letter. A lot of times, you know, you read Paul's letters and it comes to a conclusion. You get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He throws this responsibility out and that responsibility out. Reminds the people of God to do this or not to do that. But here we have statements that are not just a bunch of miscellany. Just a bunch of detached exhortations. Just a bunch of, my Bible says, further instructions. Further instructions. It seems to me Paul's further instructions are all connected to what he teaches us in the body of the book. He gives a final burst of commands, firing off one 
imperative, one command after another, directing his readers to take heart to the things he's already laid out before them in the body of the letter, that they're to live in joy, they're to live with gentleness, they're to live with Christ-centered hope, they're to live with godly thinking and living. And it all comes back in a word of final emphasis. But in the middle of all these commandments that he's given, one after another after another, to live out the Christian life before Christ in a faithful way, there's a bit of surprising but intensely necessary instruction that's found in the words of verse 6. It's a prohibition against anxiety. There's some indication in the body of the letter that anxiety might have been a problem in the church. He doesn't dwell on it long. He doesn't dwell on it often. But in chapter 1, he does speak about the possibility of the people becoming frightened by their adversaries. There were adversaries at Philippi. There could have been fear of what they would do. He speaks of their sufferings. He speaks of their conflicts, similar to what Paul had in his own imprisonment. He speaks about a loved member of the congregation by the name of Epaphroditus who had a health matter that was unto death. They might have been concerned or anxious about Epaphroditus. Will he live? Will he die? They may have had concern for Paul and his imprisonment. They might have concern for the fact that there might have been a little bit of disunity in the congregation. This woman Eutychus and uh, Syntyche having problems with one another and other indications of disunity within the congregation there. All of these and doubtless many more matters could bring stressors that provide and produce anxieties, tensions, fears, anxieties. And you know, we live in a world that's filled with stress. People are on medication for stress, for one matter of concern and anxiety, fears, depressions that just seem to fill the heart of 21st century people. The ancient world needed a word about anxiety. The modern world needs to have a word concerning anxiety. A normal amount of anxiety is a good thing. It simply means we care. Your child tells you they'll be home at 11 and 11.30 rolls along. You get a little bit anxious, don't you? You get a little bit concerned. It's not that you necessarily don't trust them, but hey, you got to verify along with that trust, right? got to verify but you love them. And it's out of love you are concerned for their well-being. And when you hear the car drive in the driveway or the key come in the door, you get relieved. Your anxieties are dispelled. They're home. And you then can pillow your head at night with a good conscience and go to sleep. There's lots of reasons we become anxious that are rightful and true and proper and just. And Paul's not really speaking about that. He's speaking about what happens when anxieties control you. When they get out of all proper bounds and they simply distract you in your duty and they overwhelm you with their ferocity. It's this unnatural anxiety, this over-concern for the stuff of life that becomes obsessive and becomes distracting that gets out of control and comes to rule us, that Paul sets out to the Philippians and sets out to us something of a plan, something of an antidote for that kind of crippling anxiety in the words of verse 6 and 7. Be anxious, he says, for nothing. 
It doesn't mean all anxiety you don't feel. It means when you feel it, do the right thing with respect to it. What are you to do? Well, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, he says, let your requests be made known unto God with the promise that the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, how many Christians know this verse? How many Christians have had this verse in a memory packet of things you need to memorize from the Bible? Some of you have. Okay, a bunch of hands went up. And yet, do you think it works? Do you think it works? Well, some heads are going, yeah. But probably some of you are saying, I don't know. Yeah, people tell me to pray. I bring these things before the Lord. I know we need to pray. But, hey, it doesn't always work. I still feel anxious. I still feel deeply concerned. I still feel troubled. I want to deal with the things that keep us from having peace as we implement this instruction. And I believe the key thing is the words that comprise our text in the bulletin or the title of the message. It's the words, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. That often is the omitted thing. We know how to pray. We need to pray. We're driven to prayer. We want to look to God. We want to bring Him into our life, into our Concerns. We want him to share our burdens. We want to know his reality of his presence. But oftentimes it's the absence of this with thanksgiving that we still remain troubled. We don't know thanksgiving in the way we should. We think of thanksgiving in terms of a day rather than a way. I want to address the subject of thanksgiving this morning as a way, as a way of life, not just a day. Not just a Thursday in November, but a way of life, a way of service, a way that enters into every part of our living, our prayer life, our family relations, our work at our jobs, in all that we are and in all that we do. Thanksgiving is to take a part. And what I want to do is I want to speak first of all, and you know, my wife tells me this is going to be a memorable, a memorable outline. I worked on it a bit, so whether it is a memorable outline or not, I don't know. Tell me in future years, if you remember the day, the past, you maybe, maybe don't remember anything else, but you remember that I spoke about the attitude of gratitude, the latitude of gratitude, and the magnitude of gratitude. I worked on that one. The attitude of gratitude, the latitude of gratitude, and the magnitude of gratitude. I think that's a memorable outline. I hope you'll remember it. My wife says you will. We'll find out. Let's begin with the attitude of gratitude. Now back in the day, there was a frequently heard commercial. Some of you are too young to remember this. It made most Americans aware of the ingredients of a popular hamburger. Some of you remember, some of you can say it very, very fast. Two all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on a sesame seed bun. We had that in song in a commercial. Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. McDonald's felt free to disclose the recipe of a Big Mac in a commercial. And they could do that. You know why? Because even if you didn't get all the ingredients in the recipe, or even if you did get all the ingredients in the recipe right, you still couldn't duplicate a Big Mac because you didn't know what was in the special sauce. Wasn't just all be patties, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. It was that special sauce that made the Big Mac different 
than every other burger. In fact, you know, you could look up, you do it, not now, but when you get home later, Google special sauce. You'll find there are actually companies that seek to duplicate the McDonald's special sauce with their own brand label. Yeah, for $7.99, you can send away and get some reasonable facsimile of the special sauce of a McDonald's, but you know it's still secret. McDonald's doesn't want you to know what's in the special sauce. I'm sure people have taken and broken it down chemical-wise and figured out what's in it, but um, it's still special sauce, and it makes the Big Mac different than other hamburgers. What am, what am I saying all this? I say all this because you, you need all the ingredients to have a Big Mac. You need to know what's in the special sauce. And so when Paul would tell us about an antidote to anxiety, you could have it all except the thing that makes it work, the thing that makes it special, the thing that makes it different. Because everybody, relatively speaking, knows that when you're in trouble, you've got to pray. The old statement was, there's no atheists in foxholes. People are in a foxhole in a war and they're being shot at. Everybody's crying out to God, preserve me, keep me, protect me. I don't want to die. I don't want to be shot. I don't want to be wounded. People are praying to God. That's relatively speaking the easy part. When troubles arise, when stress arises, when difficulties are at our door, we find all kinds of reasons to cry out to God. We need Him. We need His help. It's so easy then to articulate the need. Lord, I'm in danger. You even have it in uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Think of George Bailey sitting on that bar stool. He's saying, I'm not a man of prayer. <laughs> I'm not a man of prayer. But Lord, if you're there, you got to help me. I'm in trouble. My family's in trouble. If ever I need you, I need you now. We're all relatively good at this matter of raising our voices at a moment of need. But, you know, this matter of expressing thanksgiving, that's not the easy part. It's not obvious why we should be thankful when trouble's at the door. It's not obvious why we need to speak words of thanksgiving when danger is afoot, when troubles arise. But it seems to me that it's, it's this part of it that in, in reality is the stuff that makes it work. Without a grateful heart, without grateful words, we'll never rise out of the anxieties that meet us in a time of danger. Prayer, supplication, and requests are important. They're needful. They bring us under the orbit of God's presence and protection. We, that we need God in the midst of this. We need our gracious Lord to draw near to us in a time of need as He's promised. That He is our helper. That He is our refuge. That He is our strength. That He is our very present help in times of trouble. But then as we bring our needs before Him in these words of prayers, supplications and requests, they're all sort of similar words that Paul uses. But they all express this need of making, of making requests, of coming before God with our burdens, of asking Him to help us in special, specific ways. 
Lord, deliver me from the trouble. Take the danger far from my door. Come and meet me at this hour. We have all ability to express those things. But again, this matter of thanksgiving, the word is Eucharisto. The Christians speak of the Eucharist, speaking of the thank offering that many express in terms of the Lord's Supper. It implies an obligation to feel gratitude for the gifts we've already received. The gifts we continually enjoy, even in an hour of trouble. It's the awareness that we're surrounded by a whole constellation of mercies and of gifts that belong to us in the goodness and graciousness of God. And that we continue possess to possess in, in the circumstances and conditions that even trouble us in the, in the hard times of life. And the thanksgiving is something that exists and persists regardless of the ways that God answers our prayers. You see, we can, may come to God and say, Lord, take away the trouble. Deliver me from the difficulty. What if God doesn't do that? See, no is an answer to prayer. None of us can say that God doesn't hear our prayers, but you know, no is an answer to prayer. When your children come to you and say, Mom, Dad, you know, fork over you know, $500 for something I, I want as a, as a toy... No's an answer when you say no, no. You're not getting that five hundred dollars. You have your heart set in that. No, no, sorry. I don't think it's in your interests. And as a parent, you have the right to say no. Well, you never answer me. You never Yeah, you answered. You perfectly answered. And no's an answer. And many times God does not give us the things that we desire. Sometimes he gives us things that in retrospect were far better than the things that we desired. Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall the Heavenly Father give good gifts to those that ask? But you know, sometimes we ask for things that we think are good gifts, and they're not really good gifts. And God knows they're not in our interests, and He withholds them from us. And He ends up giving us something far greater than we ever could have expected. And sometimes it's only in retrospect that we realize it. And it's never a question that God never answers. It's sometimes a question he answers in ways we've never considered. He's able to do exceeding and abundantly above all that we could ever ask or even think. But you see, it's this note of thanksgiving that puts us in the orbit of the recognition of how blessed we are right now. Dangers and all, troubles and all, difficulties and all, pain and all. You might be thankful I'm not in a wheelchair. We have plenty of Christians in wheelchairs that say, Lord, thank you. That First of all, you saved my life from something that could have been worse than what I, what I received. Because I was so foolish in the way I got into the car and I, I drove on the highway above the speed limit and I crashed my car. And yet I escaped with my life. I may be in a wheelchair, but thank you, Lord, something worse didn't happen. Thank you, Lord, I'm spared to live another day. I'm spared to be with my family. I'm spared to enjoy the things I delight in and love. And there are people who see the fact that they're in a wheelchair or they're handicapped in some way or other enabled or however you want to put it today. It's just a question, again, of the goodness of God. They thank the Lord for their different enablement. They thank the Lord for what God has been pleased to bring into their lives. It's not a question that they've settled for something less it's a question that they found avenues of service and avenues of praise and avenues of thanksgiving. Perhaps you and I would have not recognized not being in their situation. 
God's grace has taught them things we simply do not know. You hear people say, I thank the Lord for my cancer. I thank the Lord for my cancer. God's been pleased to give me cancer. It's opened up a world of witness to people in the hospital, to people on the nursing staff, to people that I'm on the chemo drip with, beside me. And I'm able to speak of the wonderful goodness of God. You see, gratitude is not something that is an attitude. It has a latitude that's all-embracive. It's all-embracive. It covers the full extent of our lives before God in every situation of life. Paul begins his letter by saying to the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. Really? Really? I mean, if you think that means that Paul never had a bad experience with any of the Philippians, you're, you're probably wrong. There was never a day that Somebody slept under his sermon? Or maybe said, Paul, you're crazy to think that. Or maybe somebody's sitting in the congregation, he's trying to teach, and they have their eyes full and say, not to listen to this man. I mean, come on, that's what life in a fallen world is about. You run into people that just don't respond well to your ministry. It's part and parcel of the reality of life in the church. And yet Paul could look back on all of his experiences with people that were willing and receptive and they were a joy for him to minister and the hard ones and the difficult ones he said I look back at it all and Lord I thank you that you taught me something from each of those people maybe you taught me patience through somebody who was difficult to get along with maybe you taught me to get along with the people that are just not as easy to get along with and it taught me to look to you with greater measures of prayerfulness and needing to call into play the graces of the Christian life that sought to make me patient in areas where you just get so testy, in areas where you just want to lash out and say, well, you never get it right. And you just get patient with people like that. Paul could look back at his experiences in Philippi and honestly say, I thank my God in all my remembrances of every one of you, in every situation we were in, good or bad. And in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. There's a power in thanksgiving that leads to joy. When you can be thankful for your enemies, when you can be thankful for the people that have opposed you, you can say, Lord, I'm thankful that in the midst of Knowing that person, as difficult as it's been, I could learn an aspect of Christ-likeness as Jesus had to face his adversaries, as Jesus had to face those who were slow to heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, as Jesus had to bear with people of whom he would say, Oh ye of little faith. And I can learn something of Christ-likeness in those situations that prayer of thankfulness will transform to joy. Even in the midst of the negative memories, God has a purpose for us in all of life's relationships. God doesn't bring people into your life without, by accident. I remember when I was a, a young Christian, I, I had a job that should have been joyful every single day. I was a recreation aide in a nursing home. But the Lord was pleased to bring into the 
nursing home, a man who was a, a wicked man in, 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 in ways that I can't even address in public, of, of the extent of his evil and the extent of his wickedness. And this evil, wicked man, he'd come in in the mornings, and I usually would take some time to sit at a table, I'd have my Bible before me, and I'd have my devotions, I'd be reading God's Word, and he'd come back, and he was a man from another country, and he would, with this bellicose sneer, Ah, holy man, he'd say. <laughs> holy man! <laughs> you want to get your day bummed out? Get somebody to do that to you. Holy man! And it would rankle me. It would distress me. It would trouble me. It took a long time to become thankful for that man. The woman who became my wife said to me, Honey, wherever you go in life, you're going to meet a man like that. Wherever you go in life, you're going to meet a man like that. And those people don't come across your path by accident. They just do exist in a fallen world. And you have to learn to live as a Christian with them. You have to learn to relate to them as a child of God. Not filled with bitterness. Not filled with anger. Not filled with a spirit that lashes out at them. But seeks to show them something of self-denying love. And to tell them, well, if God dealt with me like I want to deal with you... That would not be good, but he has not. He has not dealt with me after my sins, nor rewarded me in accordance with my iniquities, and I will not deal with you that way. I will show long-suffering. I will show patience. I will show grace. Because I've received grace. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it either. And yet this reality that frames my life. To become thankful to God for the troublesome people he brings into your life. To teach you the lessons of his grace you would not learn in any other way. But you're open to receive instruction from such people as even those people. Even those people. Think of where Paul's writing this letter. Paul's not writing this letter on the beach in the Caribbean. He's not writing it in the south of France, on the Riviera, just having a high old time. He's not in Club Med. He's in a jail. He's in a prison. He's expressing thanksgiving as a prisoner. Saying the things that happened to me have happened to the progress of the gospel. They're falling out to the progress of the gospel. The enemies of the gospel thought that was the thing that was going to shut my mouth. And look at this. I'm in a prison and I'm chained to a Roman guard and you know what? I have a captive audience. I have a captive audience. I can speak all day to this Roman prisoner. This Roman, I'm the Roman prisoner, but he's, he's the Roman jailer whom I can witness to and speak of the unsearchable riches of Christ. So that the gospel became known to all the Praetorian guard, he said. All the, all the, the jailers heard the word. God called out to himself some from that number through Paul's imprisonment. Can't say, you tell me that God cannot work through hardships and negative circumstances? Paul is a clear example of that. Paul experiences joy in the midst of an imprisonment, in the midst of his own anxiety and his own uncertainty as to the outcome of this trial. 
And yet he tells the Philippian Christians that he, in a prison, is dependent upon his, their prayers as well as his own. Look what he says in chapter 2. I'm sorry, in chapter 1. He says in the words of verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Read my rescue, my salvation. This is going to turn out for my salvation. This is not going to destroy me. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says the key issue is not so much whether I get out of this prison or I stay in this prison or I die in this prison. The real issue is, will Christ be honored in my body, regardless of the outcome? He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, it means more fruitful labor. But I don't know what the best thing is. Continue in this world, continue to labor for the gospel, to continue to be a witness for God's truth in Christ, or to die and be with Christ, which is far better. There's a far better reality that death brings. You know, the realization for a Christian is, if they kill you, they only bring you into the presence of Jesus. And for you to live as Jesus. So to be brought into the presence of Jesus, that's not lost, that's gain. That's gain. I used to think death would be lost because I always wanted to know who's going to win the next World Series. Who's going to win the next Super Bowl. And if I'm not here to see it, I won't know, so I will lose. But for me to live is not sports any longer. Once was, but not any longer. For me to live is Christ. And if we're to live is Christ, if they kill you, <laughs> they just put you into the presence of the Jesus you love and serve and want to see. So that's not loss, that's gain. You can't destroy the joy of such a person, can you? <laughs> You can't destroy the thanksgiving of such a person whose life is rooted in the reality of a Savior whom to know is life eternal and whom to live for is what life is all about. And he be honored whether I live or whether I die. So all of life, as difficult as some of it is to negotiate, it's all a matter for thanksgiving. All outcomes are not equally happy. But all things are a matter that will bring glory to God. And hence are a cause of thanksgiving to God. To be able to say, Lord, I thank you for the enemies. I thank you for the haters. I thank you for the people that have told me the truth that I didn't want to hear, who have humbled me in your presence, the people who have opposed me and taught me patience, the people whose peculiarities have taught me to not think so much of myself, but to think more of them and more of how I might creatively love them and serve them and bless them, the people whose attitudes towards me, good or bad, have taught me understanding what life in God's world is all about. Lord, I thank you for my prison cell. Lord, I thank you 
that I could advance the gospel among the soldiers that guard me. I thank you for the illnesses that you bring into my life that I can honor you in that place where perhaps people need to hear about the gospel. I thank you for the sufferings of this present life that are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to me. I thank you for the goodness I know of your grace and kindness in all of life's circumstance. When you're thankful for all of these things, where does anxiety go? It tends to be quelled, doesn't it? Are you anxious this morning? They took lab work for me on Thursday. I could be anxious. I wonder if everything turned out okay. I wonder if there's any indicators of disease. What do you do when you're anxious about such things? I got bit by a tick the other week. The tail of the tick. They might come into my Thanksgiving testimony. I don't know about the tail of the tick. Maybe not. The point is, it put me on a week of dread, week and a half of dread uh, antibiotics that don't agree with me at all. It's been a difficult couple of weeks, but I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that in, our, in weakness, his strength is made perfect. I'm thankful that in the midst of all the troubles of the past couple of weeks, I could still stand before you and string together two consecutive words and speak forth God's word in some measure of clarity that you hopefully will benefit by. Well, you could ask him to deliver me from everything. Lord, I wish I hadn't gone through these things. I wish I hadn't experienced what I've experienced. But yet in the midst of it, if we learn to trust him, if we learn to lean upon him, whatever the report for the doctor would be, whatever the outcome of a, a test would be, whatever would be God's will, I can be thankful. I can thank him for all the years of my life that maybe I never expected to live. My father died at 32, so I didn't know that I would live to be 70, going to be 71 soon. Hard to believe when you're uncertain. But yet God's given me life in this world. And I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for all the things we've known and enjoyed and, and been blessed by. But if everything else is taken from me, I still have the knowledge of a Savior who loved me. A Savior who gave himself for me. Our Lord Jesus experienced the evils of this world, the wrath of this world. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet the scripture tells us for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of God. And it wasn't easy. See of his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. If it be possible, he said, let this cup pass for me, but nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. We know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he gave himself to prayer. He gave himself to supplication. He gave himself to making requests before God. What we don't know is how much thanksgiving was a part of his prayers. But I think it had to be an element in it. But somehow you don't go from being prostrate on the ground before God, saying, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me, and then rising with the confidence and the certainty and the joy to go before your enemies without a single quiver to give your life a ransom for many if there's not the element of thanksgiving that entered into the whole process there's an example of something like that that happened prior to the cross where our Lord Jesus had to face the reality of the wickedness of this world again one who is holy, harmless, undefiled separate from sinners 
the perfect Son of God comes into this miserable world with all of its wickedness, with all of its evil, with all of its self-centeredness. What a shocking thing it must have been for Jesus to experience this world on this world's terms. And you think about how he, again, faced adversaries, faced those who simply rejected him and rejected his message. We read in the 20th chapter of Matthew 11 that there was a once a time when Jesus was so rejected and so met with unbelief and so met by people that had hard hearts and rebellious wills that he actually at one point began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. This is Matthew 11 and verse 20. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Hey, wait a minute. I've healed the sick. I've cast out demons. I've, I've given sight to the blind. I've cured, cured of leprosy. I've, I've, I've cleansed the lepers. And these people don't get it. God is in their midst. They won't repent. Mighty works done in their midst. They got such light. And they walk in darkness still. And Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, he says they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Then he Deals with Capernaum on simple ter- Capernaum on simple terms, similar terms. But you know, you denounce the wicked for their wickedness, and you walk away having a certain sense of, well, okay, leave that in the hands of God. They're going to meet their end that's deserved. There's a certain measure of consolation, can you really say? Maybe a little bit. But Jesus does something more than denounce. In a time of denouncing the evil of an evil world, he also engages in thanksgiving. He also engages in thanksgiving. Verse 25, at the same time, it's at that very time, it's that very time Jesus is speaking these words of denunciation against the wicked for their wickedness. He declares, I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and you've revealed them to little children thank you Lord thank you you've done this now you might say why did he do it well we don't know Jesus simply says yes father for such was your gracious will Jesus sees the gracious will of God in human unbelief How do you get there? With a heart of thanksgiving. With a heart of thanksgiving. Brethren, it's the special sauce. It really is. That needs to be added to the life of prayer and making requests and supplications before God for your felt needs. To be able to say in the midst of the things that are troubling you, in the midst of the things that are bringing you distress, you need to be a thankful person. You need to be thanking God. He is still Lord of heaven and earth. He's not abandoned the throne of the universe. He's not left everything to the will of wicked, wicked people. He's not left everything to the devil to determine what the outcomes will be. God still reigns as Lord of heaven and earth. I thank you. In everything that's happening in my life, you've purposed for good. It's 
part of your gracious will. It's the unfolding of the goodness of the heart of God. He's why he is wiser than I. He knows better than I. I could rest myself into his all-knowing, all-wise hands. And then Jesus then is revived to then look at the people of the world, many of whom continue to reject him, continue to not believe, and then look at them and say, still, come to me. Come to me! All who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'm not going to give you wrath. I'm going to give you rest. I'm not just going to denounce. I'm going to give you rest. Come to me. He's re-energized for the work the Father had given him to do. To go about doing good. To go about displaying grace. To go about living as the true example of godliness that we need to be emulating. We need to be Christ-like in that respect. Yes, there's a time to denounce, but don't leave it there. Thank God for all of His wisdom and His grace and His goodness, even in difficult times. Give Him thanks. Thank Him for His love to you in Christ. Thank Him for the blessings of so great a salvation. Thank Him for His promises not to deliver you, to, not, not to deliver you from troubles of this world. That's, that's not a promise there. It's in the Bible. A lot of times when you become a Christian and troubles first begin. It's, it's not a promise you won't have troubles. But it's a promise to deliver you from sin and death. Thank Him for your adoption. Thank Him for the intimacy of relationship to the God of heaven and earth. Infinitely wise. Infinitely good. Infinitely loving and caring. The God who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Thanksgiving has magnitude to it. Folks, it's huge. It's transformative. It can transform prayers of need into prayers of praise. It can transform days of trial into days of triumph. It's that which can bring us to know, indeed, in all these things. In all these things, in Romans 8, it's, it's, it's tribulation, persecution, nakedness, peril, sword, all the troubles of life you would think of. And he says, all these things were more than conquerors to him who loved us. Thanksgiving is not just a day. It's a way. It's a way of grace. It's a way of empowerment. It's a way of realization of the riches, of the blessings of life, the spiritual blessings of the gospel. It's a way of praise unceasing. It's a way that ultimately leads to peace. That sense of well-being, that all is ordered in a disordered world. All is well in a world that's unwell. Because God has not abandoned His promises, and God has not abandoned His reign and His rule, that God has not abandoned you as His child, that He is going to be with you to the end. Thanksgiving is that which takes us out of despondency and distress and anxiety to all that evaporates, all that ceases. And we're given strength to continue on yet another day to give praise and honor and thanksgiving.
to the God of heaven and earth. This is the special sauce that brings peace, that guards the heart, that brings the God of peace to be with us. We have every reason as the children of the living God to be joyful. This Thanksgiving and every Thanksgiving day, this Thanksgiving for us is not just a day. It's a way. May God help us to walk that way of true thanksgiving and to know the richness of his peace and his blessing ever to be with us. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the blessing of prayer. We're thankful for the blessing of humbling ourselves before you with our burdens and our needs and knowing that you care for us and unburdening our hearts and minds before you. We're thankful we can come and make our requests and we know that you're not indifferent to the things we ask. And yet, Lord, we're thankful most of all that as we come to pray, we have already so much to be grateful for, so much to give you thanks for. And we pray that that note of thanksgiving will never be absent in our prayer life. It wouldn't just be that we come to get this and get that and ask for this and after that, ask for that. But we come to offer to you the praises, the thanksgivings, the joy of our hearts because of who you are and because of all the richness of your grace and kindness to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Deliver us, we pray, from a, a thankless heart and an ungrateful heart. Help us to realize what blessings are ours in the gospel, in and through our Lord Jesus, that we would be able to rejoice and to be exceedingly glad, knowing that your blessings are good for time and eternity. We would know your hand of good in this life, and we will know eternal blessings and eternal riches in the age which is to come. So we pray you'd be with your people at this Thanksgiving season. Help us to transmute the day into a way, a way of endless, ceaseless praise and thanksgiving, knowing that it is good to give thanks unto our God, to show forth your loving kindness every morning and your faithfulness every night. We ask you to hear our prayers as we come before your presence with thankful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.